humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Nate Turner, president at Enline Energy. Enline Energy is an energy recovery company who has developed a unique back-pressure steam turbine. As a geothermal guy, I always love talking about hot water, and in this case, steam. So I'm excited to have Nate on the show today to talk about the solution that they have developed. Nate, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to Enline Energy. Joe, uh, thank you so much for the uh, opportunity. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here, uh, and thanks to all the listeners. Um, so Nate Turner, uh, president at Enline, um, and I run our thermal energy division. Uh, we are an energy development company uh, where we specialize in um energy recovery, essentially from wasted energy opportunities. Uh, we were started uh, in the small hydro space, the sub five, sub five megawatt hydro space, where uh, we are essentially identifying opportunities where uh, you can install a hydro turbine uh, in lieu of, in a lot of cases, a pressure reducing valve um, and capture that wasted energy. So again, we call it energy recovery. Uh, and so we've, we started as a development company. Uh, we've since came on, um, uh, I joined the company a number of years ago in order to start a second line of business that looks very similar, and I'll get into the details of, of how those two correlate. But essentially, we do the same thing on the steam side, is we recover energy from pressure-reducing stations in steam systems. Um, my background specifically, I'm an engineer by training. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, went to Northwestern, got an engineering degree, um, and then from there, I uh, started in design and construction. I really enjoy building stuff. I really enjoy the tangible aspect of putting uh, concrete and steel in the ground and, and seeing something grow from that. Um, I went and worked in business strategy for a while uh, and really enjoyed this kind of the same concept of building companies. And so coming out of business strategy, which is essentially, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a way to get an MBA and get paid for it. Um, so... Uh, it's a great experience, uh, worked all over the world and uh, came out of that and thought it'd be great to start building companies. And so um, I, since then, I've been doing essentially clean tech, water and, and energy uh, startups, for, for, for lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, with the goal of, of building tangible infrastructure assets uh, that, you know, save customers money ultimately improve the overall value of the environment and uh, as well as the economy. So yeah, that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell and what we do at Enline. Yeah, that's great. And I personally always like it when there is a, a 
technical minded person running and developing companies, because I think there's this, there's this component of really understanding what the problem is and what the solution is that's being provided that sometimes you don't get unless you have that engineering mindset or that solutions oriented mindset to actually build what build a solution for the problem. So I, I definitely want to, to look at that as we go through this conversation. And I think that first part is when we talk about N-Line, you, you said that you started in the, the hydro space and now what you have, you've been developing is this steam turbine waste, waste heat energy recovery section. I'm curious what, what is the, I guess, what was the, the, the prompting for that change or that prompting of the new market? And, and then eventually we want to start getting into details on like sizes, but let's first start with that. What is, how did you go from hydro to steam? Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny and serendipitous story. How, uh, how all these things come together. Right. Um, So we were started again in hydro and the idea was uh, our founder and CEO, he he came out of the demand response space. And so he was working with some water utilities and working with them to figure out, you know, what are opportunities to turn off power in, um, you know, in in peak shaving types of uh, situations. Uh, And he was working specifically in Southern California, where obviously, you know, brownouts are very real um, and have been for quite some time. And so he's working with some some uh, water utilities, and one of them said, "Well, can you do anything with pressure reducing stations?" Uh, and they and he at the time he had no idea what that was, and said, "Well, it's basically just this box in the ground makes a bunch of noise and wastes energy." Um, and so, for those that don't understand what a pressure reducing station is, <clears throat> especially in California or anywhere with um, with any elevation, you can imagine. I live in the Bay Area. And uh, we get our water from um, from the Sierra, and for every two to four hundred uh, feet of elevation that you lose, uh, also known as, as you know you have head in, uh, you have pressure or head in the pipe, you have four hundred feet of head. Uh, what happens is you have to reduce the pressure, otherwise it would ex- the pipes explode, right? So um, so every two or four hundred feet, uh, you're getting a pressure reducing station along that span of pipe. Um, and in a lot of cases we work with, uh, water utility or water treatment plants that, uh, in order to inject water into their treatment process, they have to break the pressure before it enters the process. And then municipalities have pressure reducing stations all over their network. Um, but what happens is the water comes in and you put it through a valve and that energy is wasted. That pressure is gone. Um, and, uh, and so my CEO said, huh? That seems like an opportunity to generate power. Um, and so we went and did the research. And where we really – we cut our teeth in California, which is the hardest place to put power on the, on the grid, um, and, uh, but also has the most amount of opportunities uh, in, that, in that small hydro space. Uh, and so we're quite successful. Um, our first project was installed within two years of that discussion um, at San Gabriel Valley uh, Water District. Uh, they installed a, a, a new pressure-reducing turbine powerhouse uh at the influent or the input of their um their plant and they haven't paid a uh, power bill since so pretty cool 
Um, and that's been operating for 10 years now. Uh, so, so we did a lot of that on the hydro space. Uh, and ironically, one of our, uh, customers, uh, that we were working with was SoCal gas. They own some hydros, uh, and, and in working with us, they really liked the way that we did business, uh, because our overall, like, especially in hydro, um, there's no one turbine that fits in every, in, in every situation. And so we really became the group that, identified the right turbine, you know, put an engineering team together, identified the right turbine for the right opportunity and really the most profitable turbine. You know, I started my career in uh, design and construction and what you typically do in engineering design is you over-engineer things, right? You, you, you size things, you know, in a pumping station, you usually oversize because you need that worst case scenario. When you're designing a power generation uh, station, if you take that same approach, you're going to install a turbine that only works in the highest flow scenarios. And that's, that's not profitable. So, um, so we kind of, you know, really created a nice secret sauce of, you know, identifying the right uh, technologies that go on the right applications. And so, so Calgas said, we really like the way you're approaching this. Have you guys, what are you guys doing in steam? Because there's a huge opportunity, um, very similar. Uh, if you, go ahead and, you know, if, if you're looking in that space and they said at the time we didn't know anything about steam. Um, I wasn't with the company yet, but, uh, but essentially started looking at the, the steam space and, uh, SoCal gas, they, they oversee, I think like roughly a, a thousand boilers in the, in the LA region. Um, and so they said, well, you know, there's a lot of pressure reducing stations associated with steam systems. Um, so I came on as the as the uh, the strategy consultant to write the original business case for what would ultimately become the thermal energy business. Um, and and what I found was uh, there are in commercial and industrial applications there are literally thousands of of opportunities where steam is being generated at high pressure, and it's different for every application why that's happening. But typically, then steam the steam usage is at low pressure. And so there's always a pressure reducing station somewhere in that steam system where there's an opportunity to generate power. And so I came in and uh, ultimately identified, you know, a specific size. Uh, and um, we identified uh, a unique technology that was invented in Southern California. It's relatively new. And then um, we identified a number of applications for it and decided to buy it. So we came in, essentially it was a skunk works out of Southern California and uh, we took on the IP and we now are the OEM for what's called the micro steam turbine in the steam space. All right. You said that was skunk works? Skunk works. It, I mean, it's like, it's, it's uh, it was a, it was a group of Caltech mechanical engineer. Uh, they like inventing stuff, but not necessarily um, going out and commercializing technologies. Um, All right. Yeah. Interesting. So let's talk about about back pressure steam for for just a minute, just sure. to make sure we all understand yeah. what this is. It sounds like there's a huge opportunity for a market, but what exactly does back pressure steam mean? Sure. Yeah, and and so when you talk steam turbines, there's tip. You know, the two most obvious versions of that are. You know the, the the largest market for steam turbines are, are condensing turbines. So you imagine all of the power plants, the majority of the power plants where we get our power from the grid are from you know whether it's 
uh, a, a nuke plant, whether it's a natural gas plant, whether it is a, um, a coal plant, a- anything that's you're, where you're burning fuel, you're making steam, and you're passing it through a condensing turbine. And you're trying to suck out every ounce of energy available in that steam. And then you condense the steam, but you take all the latent energy out, and then you condense it. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's the typical installation of a steam turbine. And that technology has been around since the 1800s. Uh, a back pressure turbine, also known as a letdown turbine, um, is really for just pressure reduction, where there is a demand for the steam on the backside of the turbine. So the, the example that I use that I think is the most applicable and easiest to understand is a hospital. Obviously, everybody's been to a hospital. They understand what a hospital is. Uh, a hospital, you can imagine, they have... Uh, you know, obviously it's a, it's a lot of real estate, so they have to heat that space. Um, and with, with, uh, operating rooms that interestingly, they have consistent steam demand year round because operating rooms, you have to do zone reheat on a regular basis. And so you have cooling and heating year round, um, because those operating spaces are, are, they require temperature modification on a regular basis. Um, but also hospitals have to sterilize, right? They do a lot of sterilization. Sterilization requires a higher temperature, and in the case of steam, uh, higher pressure. So higher pressure steam equates to high temperature steam. So typically you go into a hospital and they have a boiler room. They are high pressure boilers. They're generating high pressure steam, primarily just to meet a small uh, demand of, of, uh, of sterilization. And then the majority of the demand for the actual steam is heating, and they do that at low pressure. Typically, you know, the, the um, most efficient uh, heating of a hospital-type space or a commercial-type space would be at like 10, 5 to 10 PSI versus they have boilers that are 150 or 200 or 300 PSI boilers. So wow. the majority of that flow is going from 150, 200, 300 PSI down to five to 10 PSI. So it's a significant drop. Um, and so in all those applications, you're, that's, it's an opportunity to generate power. And since, uh, since steam is used consistently year round, uh, you can generate power year round. And especially in the summer where you really want to offset, uh, uh, demand the, the cost of power typically in the summer is more expensive. And so one of the nice things about a hospital is, year-round you're generating power it's base load power it's consistent because you can look at the flows and know exactly how much power you're generating so that's what a back pressure turbine is because there is a need for the steam on the backside, and so you're just making power on the pressure drop versus condensing the steam into water and returning it back to the, the boiler yeah okay i think i understand now and i i think that's it is interesting to think about the the fact that you're boiling this, you're making this high pressure energy source, but you're ultimately not using that pressure at all. It's just kind of there because of the process. And then you still need that steam. So this is, this is almost a, an obvious way to, to make a little bit of extra energy. That's right. Utilizing that back pressure. Right. And so you said, you said that hospitals are generating steam basically 24 seven year round. Yeah. Are there any other sectors that are doing this year round as well? 
Sure. So um, another example uh, would be, so the, the interesting and beautiful thing and also challenging thing for us on the Steam side is Steam is used, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. So um, uh, universities, so district heating systems. So universities use, they, they have a central energy plant where they generate steam and they distribute steam throughout their campus. So we just did a big project with the University of Idaho where they have, an, um, they have uh, a big steam plant. They use biomass to make steam. Um, and then they, uh, that steam passes through a pressure reducing station and then it's distributed to the, the campus. So we plopped in three turbines. We're making uh, 825 kW. Um, and, uh, and then um, we have the ability. To, so district heating systems, that's essentially a, another commercial application. But the obvious one is industrial. There are, you know, just an incredible amount of opportunities in the industrial space. Uh, another good example that, that we do a lot of work with lumber mills. So anything, if, if heating is required, typically steam is used because steam is, it's two things. Um, it is usually it's the least expensive, uh, heating media. It's also the most efficient. So if you go back to your thermodynamic, um, uh, heat transfer, uh, classes in college, Steam is the best way to heat anything. Um, it just it you get more bang for your buck in the you know energy input versus energy output. Um, and also one of the beauties of steam is uh, there are no pumps required. So you make steam and it goes wherever you want it to go. Uh, versus you know I know you deal a lot in hot water. The challenges with hot water is you have to pump it, and that's not free. Yeah. <laughs> So the beauty, like you, once you make the steam, it goes wherever you want it to go. You don't need to do anything else. Uh, and so, you know, in, in, in all industrial sectors, um, steam is the heating media. So you can imagine, you know, we work with lumber mills where they use steam to dry wood. So they have these big ovens, kilns that uh, they, they pump all the wood into. They cut it up and then they, they put it into the kilns. It dries it. It cures it. And then they, it's off to sale. And so a lumber mill has constant steam flow. Um, and they all tend to have high pressure boilers, uh, where we come in and plop in a turbine, um, food processors, uh, not every food processor, but a lot, a lot of food processors, same deal. They need, they need a small amount of high pressure or high temperature steam. And then the majority is just like, they need to boil pots and, uh, and, and so they use lower pressure steam. Um, you know, refineries, chemical plants. We have a project at a pharmaceutical plant um, uh, that helped make the, the, um, the vaccines that we all just uh, took. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's literally everywhere. Uh, yeah. And it's something, it's, it's funny, like you, you talk about steam and they're like, well, that's something that's, you know, that's the olden days. My grandfather literally used to, he worked for uh, Babcock and Wilcock and was a welder building boilers that I probably go out and see these days when I go out to, to wow. project sites. Um, and so it feels like a very old technology, but there's really nothing better. Um, it's still okay. the best source of, of, of heat uh, and heat transfer. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, it's pretty much everywhere. And I think depending on where you are in the country, it may be a different industry, yeah. but 
across the across the board there are industries using steam yep and so i guess spatially we can see that there there is opportunity what about physical quantity in terms of kilowatts or megawatts of wasted energy here because yep. it it i mean for for some people and and i just talked to two i had a, a panel with some nuclear folks on it they're talking about 600 megawatt power plants sure. that they're building yep. and you you pointed out 825 kilowatts right some yep. people may not see like how you scale from yeah. kilowatts up to megawatts or even gigawatts. Right. So how big is this market? Yeah. So uh, in the U.S., um, there's roughly 12,000 boilers that we can actually, you know, those there's 12,000 opportunities that where we can have an impact. And we, we have two different sizes of turbines. We have a, a 275 kW unit um, and a 125 kW unit. KW unit. Um, I mean, where most people look, go, uh, go bigger, um, we realize there's a huge opportunity in smaller systems because nobody's paying attention to it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, while we're building what are theoretically powerhouses, uh, it's really, um, you know, this is distributed generation in most, in most regions of the U S and then internationally, uh, we're viewed as an energy efficiency measure because, Okay. We're, we're taking a percentage of the power off the grid, you know, wherever we install it, you know, it's a hospital lumber mill. We're taking a certain percentage of their power demand off the grid. So the utility looks at us and says, oh, I just have to I have to deliver less there because it's baseload power. It's consistent. It's predictable. Uh, it's all behind the meter. So it in general, it's uh, it's uh, it's really small stuff, but it's similar to what we did in hydro. You know, I mean. Obviously, you can, you can go and, and, and replace the turbines at a big, uh, you know, Grand Coulee Dam. Um, and there's certainly a lot of money in that. But that's one project, you know, every 10 years, 20 years. Um, and whereas, like, everyone's ignoring the, uh, the, the check dams on, on an irrigation canal. Um, and in this case, uh, they're really one of our challenges. There's not a lot of competition in this size range. Um, and so a lot of people don't know that it exists, but the reality is there are thousands and thousands of opportunities. And so, you know, it's, it's, we're hitting singles, you know, where a lot of people are going for grand slams, we're hitting singles. Uh, and because again, it's, it's, it's an untapped market and, uh, those facilities need to save money and save energy too. And ultimately we're, we're saving them, uh, carbon, uh, they're, we're reducing their carbon, uh, footprint because, they're they're generating power significantly with, with less impact than the grid. So yeah, yeah, and I think it the twelve thousand opportunities that that alone like that sounds like a, a fairly big market. And that's for just companies. the U.S. Yeah, yeah, just the U.S. and and from my understanding, things like district heating systems are significantly more common as you move over into Europe. Right. Whereas in the U.S., you don't have many many for like housing developments, the industry, universities, hospitals, they have them. Right. But once you move out of the East coast, you basically stop seeing radiators and you stop seeing that district heating. Sure. Yeah. But so in the U S alone, I just did a quick calculation with, 
with your size units, that's still 1,500 up to potentially 3,300 megawatts. That's a that's still a pretty big number. Yeah. And and it's always important. I always love pointing out that baseload baseload has a significant. It's a high capacity factor. So that is that's almost equivalent to two, three, four times as much solar or wind because of the capacity. Absolutely. Factor. Absolutely. So, I mean, when we came in, you know, when we were originally doing this business case and, you know, you, you always talk, you talk to developers or you talk in uh, price per kilowatt hour, right? Uh, yeah. Or price per kilowatt. Um, when you compare that to solar, obviously we look very expensive, but we, we generate five times as much power. <laughs> Because, you know, so my, my one 275 kilowatt turbine is worth like one to one and a half, uh, megawatts of solar. So, and I, one of the cool things about our turbine is it fits through a standard doorway. It's the size of the refrigerator in your house. So you can put it anywhere, um, versus you want a meg, you know, a megawatt of solar. That's, you know, whose farm are you taking over? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, that's really important to understand. So it, when we talk about the sizing, I guess, would it be relatively easy to, how easy is it to take this into any existing existing buildings for retrofitting purposes? It sounds like pretty much anywhere it would be fine. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's how uh, it was intentionally designed this way. Um, so it's a very compact system. Um, because footprint is always going to be an issue. Pressure reducing stations are designed for pipe and a valve. And so there's not, they're not typically designed as, you know, with a lot of extra space. Um, and so it needs to go in a really small space and it's, it's, and also, um, you know, I, I, again, I came from design and construction, uh, and typically you, you take a piece of equipment and you multiply it by three or four, and that's going to be your installed cost. Um, because, you know, all of the civil works, all of the additional, you know, uh, tailored engineering for a specific site, all that gets very expensive. Um, and so this is a skid mounted, pre-wired, pre-plumbed, uh, package because it needs to be able to, you know, the installation costs need to be very low to have something as small as a quarter or 125, you know, quarter megawatt or 125 KW system. It, it's pl- it has to be plug and play. It's the only way it works. Uh, and also, um, since we're generating power, uh, one of the concerns that a number of customers, um, especially if they've they've dealt with older style turbines, is they're like, well, I need to hire somebody or multiple people to run this thing. Um, well, that doesn't work. The economics don't work with something that small. So it has to, you know, it has to take care of itself. And luckily, I mean, again, invented by smartest people I've ever met, Caltech mechanical engineers, and uh, and they designed it to be foolproof and it's modern controls, it runs itself. Um, we're actually working on projects where we're doing one of the another potential benefits of this of this type of a technology is can be used as uh, backup power. So um, we can actually design a microgrid around this turbine and where uh, uh, you can get islanding capability. And so that's actually what we did at University of Idaho, uh, where we wrapped the whole thing. We worked with Schweitzer Engineering Labs. Uh, SEL designed the microgrid programming around the turbine uh, that allowed us to, you know, essentially, it was beautiful. I was up there a few weeks ago 
unfortunately, they're getting more and more power outages uh, in that region. Uh, and so we were on site and we were outside and the lights went out outside and we walked in and nothing, it's like nothing happened. It was beautiful. I mean, wow. it's incredible how these, these, uh, these, these things come together anymore. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that would, the idea of a microgrid using the back pressure steam turbine accompanied with a boiler, I guess you're, you're feeding that boiler with some type of combustible right. in, and so that way you're, you're always going to be providing that steam right. that's not dependent on the grid. And now you can generate electricity with it as well. Yep. So you kind of have both your heating and your cooling and your electricity. Yeah. So it's the, you get everything. You can imagine in a hospital scenario, they're always looking for additional backup power. Like it's yep. super critical. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now we, we've, talked around and you, you've pointed out the the unique opportunity with these smaller turbines one of the questions that I was was going to ask is kind of do you ever see endline making larger turbines but it, it sounds like there's there's this unique opportunity for the small turbines right now I guess when you look at something like that in terms of of the design perspective and the opportunity, opportunity cost, kind of from that both technical and business viewpoint. I'm curious. I've got a question in there somewhere. Do sure. you do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I think the answer is yes. Uh, the answer is um, there are always, uh, you know, there's there's always new markets, right? So uh, we do have a very unique technology. Um, and one of the reasons why uh, this hasn't been developed before and why, you know, the older style turbines, they're just designed differently. You know, ultimately, uh, we, our turbines run a lot faster. So a, a conventional turbine, you know, we, we go into some lumber mills that have an old letdown turbine and um, they generate about 30 at 30 or 40% efficiency because basically the design is you take a big turbine and you just make it smaller. Uh, but if you run it at the same speed, it doesn't, you know, you lose efficiency. Um, the smaller you go, the faster the turbine has to, the rotor has to spin. So our micro steam, our 275 unit spins at 28,000 RPMs. Um, and so we were able to get a more ideal expansion at that smaller flow. Uh, and then in our 125, the turbine spins at 45,000 RPMs. Again, the smaller you go, the faster it has to be. So, you know, if you think conversely, if we go bigger, the fact is it's going to slow down. And at some point, we're going to match the efficiency. The, the conventional turbine, a bigger version of that is, you know, equivalent in terms of efficiency. Um, and, but the reality is uh, there's, still, there's still room for us to grow. Um, so we run into a lot of opportunities. Uh, we work with a lot of paper mills and, uh, and now working with uh, refineries. They have a 600 PSI. Uh, they generate steam at 600 PSI and wow. they send 70, 80% of that immediately down to 300 PSI. Uh, wow. And so those are, in most cases, that's one to three megawatt. Uh, so we know that's an opportunity. It, it doesn't make sense for us to put in you know, 15 of our smaller units. Yeah. We, so, so we know that's an opportunity We're we, we're in the uh, design process to, to build that bigger turbine. 
luckily it's it's basically just um it's an extension of what we already have uh so it's not overly complicated but uh but we can't ignore what we're doing right so we need to keep uh working on these these smaller opportunities uh but we know that big opportunity exists uh but there is a limit you know there's we're never going to build a 20 megawatt um microsteam it's microsteam for a reason okay yeah that makes sense and i think that's it's interesting the the way that you put it is essentially you're extending what you're doing so you've you've developed this very unique valuable solution mm-hmm. and then you can see how you can either scale it either really in this case larger right. maybe not ever a smaller situation but you can scale it larger to fit and solve more problems yep. because the the fundamental solution is really where the value is. Right. Right. So I think it. we talked about microgrids and the overall size of that smaller boiler market being in that thousand, uh, all the way up to 3000 megawatts total size, mm-hmm. 12,000 boilers. And one thing that, that I want to point out and, and discuss is the, the value here of saving that wasted energy and how, when we talk about, you said hitting singles, we're hitting singles with all of these, but each single, each hundred kilowatts eventually equals megawatts and could eventually equal gigawatts. Um, so with that, it's, we see that economic benefit and, and the critical infrastructure and mission critical kind of, microgrid always on power value um those are clear are there any other major value propositions that your customers are seeing or or is there anything where they came to you saying hey this is what we want how can you help us solve it does your does your turbine solve this this problem we have yeah well i mean i mean Unsurprisingly, a lot of conversations nowadays are being driven by sustainability goals. Uh, every institution, um, whether it's you know, uh, it's a hospital, it's a university, it's a pharmaceutical plant, it's a lumber mill. Uh, literally, everybody's they've got sustainability goals, uh, and so and the utilities, the utilities are pushing for this really hard because they're desperate to get. Uh, you know, we're moving towards distributed power. We're, we're shutting down our big plants. Uh, they need, they need to take power off the grid. So they're really pushing mm-hmm. for it. Um, but in terms of sustainability, uh, you know, you go into a pharmaceutical plant, and if if we can tack onto their existing infrastructure, generate power, and take ten percent or fifteen percent of their power off, and then you know, compare that to what they were, the power they were buying and how dirty that power was. Um, ultimately we're, we're having a dramatic impact on the overall carbon footprint of some of these facilities. Uh, and, uh, yep. and, and for universities, um, you know, the same deal. Yeah. yeah and that's something it's, uh, there are those carbon calculators out there, one by the EPA, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think something you pointed out that, that, maybe people aren't thinking about, maybe they are, is the fact that that reliability factor, if you've got something like a hospital, my 
my impression or my understanding is that oftentimes that backup power is a diesel generator. It always is. Which is, yeah, it's it's not a it's not clean. Right. That is a so you're you're trading whatever your grid makeup is, yeah, which slowly is becoming more and more unreliable for a diesel generator, or you could be trading it for a, a back pressure steam turbine. Right. I think that's something that as we have more power outages, that is something also to consider is how often are we running diesel generators as opposed to whatever the grid makeup is. Yeah, absolutely. And there's two stories I want to, I want to tell there that, that really highlight that point. So, I mean, we we're do, you know, I like to talk about the, about this project a lot because it deserves a lot of credit. Um, it deserves a lot of kudos and, and a lot of attention. This project, the University of Idaho, uh, since 1980, they've been operating a biomass boiler system. So all of their thermal energy that's been heating their uh, heating their campus for going on 40 years uh, has been renewable. So. Uh, so they, they really love what they're doing. The, they get all of their, uh, their uh, biomass from local uh, – the, the local economy is lumber mills. So obviously we do work with some of their neighbors as well. But they're um, – so they get all this biomass. Uh, it's the lowest cost fuel. So they did it originally for economic reasons. But nowadays uh, it, it, it's, it looks like just you know, the most beautiful um, situation because – they're making steam. They're providing thermal energy. They also have the most efficient steam system. Uh, they have like three, you know, for the boiler folks, uh, they have like a three percent makeup. Really incredible, especially with the biomass system, which is a fairly a little more complicated to operate. Um, and so they were looking at uh, their diesel generator, which was their Black Star backup power. It's kind of at the end of its useful life. They were looking at investing in a bigger, you know, updated uh, diesel generator. But everybody there, like, we're doing this great thing. Are we really just going to buy a diesel generator? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they were always, they were looking for, for, for a while, for some form of steam turbine. But again, there really hasn't been anything that fit, uh, fit that type of profile. And so luckily we found each other uh, and put this project together. And so for them, it's like, we now, we've always been thermal energy uh, uh, renewable, and now we're generating power. For I think we're we're fifteen or twenty percent power offset for the university, and that's all renewable. Okay. It's all in house. It's doing just exactly what they were doing before, um, yeah. but now it's just you know they've got all this this free power that's renewable. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a cool it's it, it's a great opportunity. And uh, and again, um, I mean we need diesel generators out there. I'm not saying they're bad, um, but if you can uh, you know just have. And also with a diesel generator, you turn it on once in a while, right? It's like a one-time, you know, you barely, you rarely get to use it. It's just a cost center. Um, and so yeah. ours, you actually get to use it on a constant basis and get constant benefit. Um, another uh, story I want to tell, and hopefully we're not running out of time, but uh, obviously we talk a lot about the States because we spend a lot of time here and we live here, but uh, we have a lot of interesting opportunities now in South Africa uh, and developing areas where... I mean, we worry about power going. I live in California, right? We lose power. The utility turns off power once, maybe twice a year. Uh, and we're, we all get all up in arms. Um, we're working with some folks in South Africa. They lose power twice a day and for hours at a time. Can you imagine trying to run a business 
operate a business. So again, a lumber mill in South Africa, they have, you know, one megawatt of constant demand. They're operating six hours a day on diesel. Wow. So we're coming in, they ha- they're sitting on piles of biomass. It's literally waste that they have to get rid of. Now we come in, uh, they'll generate more steam, we'll generate power and um, allow them to island uh, instantaneously and essentially cut out that all of those issues. Uh, and, and, and um, you know, that's one country and it's, it's more and more prevalent, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge proponent. I live in California for a reason. I'm a huge proponent of renewable power um, and the overall transition to, to clean power. Um, and you know, the more we do that, the more we destabilize the grid. So, you know, we see, you know, we, we see this, uh, being a huge need in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, those are two great examples. And I think it, one thing I didn't really think about is, is that diesel generator while it is, it's absolutely necessary and we do need that backup for for security and reliability but the point that you made of of somebody like the university of idaho they really are just sitting on it it's not actually generating power it is just a line item that is ultimately a a cost whereas being able to use something continually now becomes an asset it's not just a a insurance policy if you will right so I think there's there's obviously a lot of great opportunity here, and it sounds like you you are growing. One thing that I that I heard you say is that there's not really many competitors, and there's not really much understanding of this opportunity. So that's a a lead up into the question of where do you see yourself in five years? Is there is there potential for supply? Ch- supply chain constraints or have you kind of secured that and see a a clear blue sky path to 1200 turbines across the u.s or 12,000 turbines across the u.s in five years yeah i mean 100 percent market share would be incredible um not sure we'll <laughs> ever get there but uh but i mean Growth's pretty consistent, uh, and we're seeing a, a big uptick. We're we're actually in the process of growing our team, um, and really, it comes down to education uh, because uh, it, it it's been fascinating. You know, when you put a little bit of time into one specific market, you hit a vein and you can go. So uh, when we when we when I brought on my original sales team, uh, the 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 market in in the lumber space. Uh, was was doing well, and we installed it a single uh, lumber mill, and then in that region, everybody wanted that. And then slowly, those stories get out. So, and that's just in lumber. Obviously, that's a very small market relative to you know refineries. So we're talking with refineries now, and you know it, it, it's really just a matter of getting the word out because again, there's nobody else. I mean, one of the beauties of competition is you have your competitors out there educating customers, right? We don't have we don't really have that. Um, and so it's really on us to go out and do it. And then we have to educate the utilities. Uh, one of the things I didn't talk about is there's a lot of incentives. You know, so one of the big, uh, you know, the, the fuel in the fire of our growth is, uh, we're seen as we are 
an efficiency measure. We're an energy efficiency measure. And so power utilities, again, they're trying to get power off the grid. So they'll pay us a significant amount of money. Uh, Avista Power uh, that that funded the uh, that put some money into the University of Idaho project, they'll pay up to 70 percent of CapEx um, to support these types of, a pro- of projects. And that's it's, it's anywhere from 20 to 70 percent across the board, across the country. Uh, and so and then um, the Inflation Reduction Act just in, instituted a tax credit. That's also um, it's uh, that nonprofits can use for the first time. So in, uh, ITCs are great uh, historically if you are a for profit institution. But if you're a nonprofit, you can't take advantage of it. They've changed it. So they have a direct payment situation now that uh, um, in some situations, we can have projects that pay up to 50% just with the investment tax credit. Um, It's a base of 30%. It's uh, and then we make everything in the United States. We use U.S. materials. So we get an extra 10% adder. So all of our projects in the States are 40%. Uh, And then in some uh, communities, energy communities uh, that have been impacted by uh, the reduction in fossil fuel, uh, you get an extra 10%. So we have projects that are 50% that are paid by the federal government um, in a tax credit. So it's incredible. So we see all that growth uh, really driving, um, you know, we, we, we see ourselves growing pretty substantially. And then, uh, you know, again, we talk a lot about the states, but Europe has a bigger market than this one. Um, and again, mm-hmm. they're more focused on the greenhouse gas reduction. The price of power is higher in Europe. And so I'm actually in two weeks, I'll be over in Europe uh, starting to develop those opportunities over there. So, so we see ourselves, uh, you know, we're, we're already a global company. We, ex- we expect that to continue to, to occur and, uh, and to grow. And, uh, and then we know there are more opportunities again, um, we focus on wasted energy opportunities and we see them everywhere we go. It's not just in the steam systems, it's elsewhere. So we see ourselves really trying to, um, it's not, you know, we don't want to be paid for, to do the design. We don't want to be paid to do the installation. We want to pay when a customer gets savings. And so with that mindset, uh, we see customers really responding. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we can do something big and impactful. We can talk gigawatts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I always like highlighting the IRA and the investment tax credit as well, as you pointed out, because that is, that is opening up so many opportunities right now. And I think if, if people aren't aware of that, definitely they should be looking into the inflation reduction act, the IRA and, and really trying to find ways to, to utilize it if they've got a project that's sitting on the shelf right now because they can't yep. can't make it work yep. now might be the time yep well with that i i think this is a good time to transition into my final questions sure. these are the questions i ask all of my guests sure that first question being what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend sure um i uh i thought about this one um I, I do a lot of audiobooks, so I listen to a lot of, of books while I run. I'm a, I'm a big runner. Uh, but uh, I, I always come back to my favorite book uh, that I read years and years and years ago, but uh, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by uh, Piercing. I mean, maybe it's because I'm an engineer by training, but uh, I, I love the beauty and philosophy of that book. So it's a great story. 
Um, I haven't bought the motorcycle yet, but uh, I've taken everything else into uh, to heart. Uh, so that's a really cool book. All right. That is a good one. I do have, I think I've got the Zen and the art of just regular bicycle maintenance okay. or maybe mountain bike maintenance. Okay. Nice. So it, yeah, I also have not read the whole thing, yeah. but it has helped me multiple times fix pieces and <laughs> fix them in a, in a much more calming way. Yes. Yes. So the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? So society, this is this U.S. or is this global? It is however you want to take it. If you think those answers are different, then you can answer both if you want. Yeah, um, it's it's a tough one, obviously. Uh, it's no crystal ball. But, um, you know, I say I live in California, and I think uh, California will probably reach its 2050 goal. Uh, but that comes with a price. Uh, California buys a lot of renewable power from other places. And that means those other places don't get to use that renewable power. So as a country, I think it's going to take us quite a bit longer. Um, and EIA says we're going to be generating power with natural gas and, and uh, you know, other fossil fuels for quite some time, um, well past 2050. So, you know, I'll throw a dart 2075, 2080, maybe. Maybe if ever, um, yeah. Globally, it's going to be real tough. I mean, the reality is we don't have the technology at this time to do those things uh, unless we, in, you know, if one of my sales guys, he, he he always pokes fun at me. He's like, "Fusion, it's coming. It's going to take all our jobs." <laughs> I was like, "So maybe, maybe Fusion, if that ever comes to reality, uh, but uh, it's going to be a while." I mean, some form of nuclear power, I think has to really mm-hmm. come to fruition um, and we have to accept yeah. it. So, yeah. yeah, I think nuclear is going to definitely need to play a, a major role and yeah. fusion is one of those moonshots that we are, we are continually looking to. Yeah. And that is one of those that, that I'm always curious as we talk about it being 10, 20, 30 years out, and as that goalpost continually gets moved to stay 30 years out, yeah. when and how do we actually get to the point of making progress? I know. And, that, and I that's think my, it's not just for fusion. That's yeah, my fear. For everything. Is, yeah. That's my fear is we, uh, we, we set these goals with the intent that, you know, we're, we have this saving grace that's, you know, out in the distance. And, mm. um, you know, I think we miss a lot of opportunities, uh, and luckily, again, this IRA is incredible because it's kind of across the board. It's really investing in everything. And I think that's the right approach. Um, and I hope that continues. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So now the last question is you actually get to ask me a question. Got it. Um, well, I've, I wonder, I mean, so this, is, this might get a little personal. Uh, we talked you know, previously, I'm very interested in geothermal. And so I think we'll have some interesting conversations about that in the future. But personally, we're both from the Midwest, right? We, uh, yeah, I grew up in Ohio, I think you grew up in Illinois, Illinois. Yep. Yeah. So being a Midwest kid, um, uh, I moved to California, Uh, I live in a a little bit different environment. But how is living in Texas? Because I almost moved there. Yeah, how is living in Texas? I 
there's there's two answers. One, absolutely love it. There is a I feel like there's a difference in culture in that people genuinely do seem nicer. I think it's just like the the standoffish or, or quiet nature of the Midwest where you just kind of don't talk to anybody. Right. Whereas here, like everybody's asking you, how are you? How are you doing? Right. How's this? How's that? How's your mom? Right. All of that kind of stuff. And maybe that's just, maybe that's Illinois versus Ohio or, or yeah. whatnot. But I feel like there's that difference. Nice. So it's, it's very nice. And, and honestly, I've, I've grown accustomed to not having winter which I am getting soft in that way, which <laughs> yeah. you move to Texas and you get a little soft, Yeah, which, yeah. which Texans probably will, will take offense to, but yes, I've grown soft by moving yeah. to Texas. I mean, you grow soft in terms of temperature regulation. That's, that's yeah. understandable. Yeah. 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 Um, the other, the other aspect. So I did my undergrad in Southern Illinois where you get out of the, the area that's all been glaciated. Right. And you get into actual topography and rocks and, and it's, it's not like California or Colorado or, or Western U S but there is topography. There was rock climbing. There are, there are things that you can go and do and you can see natural beauty right here. Everything is much more planar, much flatter. Yeah you still see a lot of beauty. The blue bonnets and the spring wildflowers are, are incomparable. I would, I would say if I had to choose one or the other, I would take Texas spring wildflowers over, over Midwestern fall leaves. Yeah. I would, I would make that choice every day. Yeah. So there, there is a different type of beauty, but I definitely like topography. So that is something that I do miss and always am trying to escape to some type of topography. Yeah. But overall, anybody who wants to move to Texas, you're you're more than welcome. I enjoy it and I would recommend it. It seems very welcome. More often than not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I uh similarly I I uh, I become soft and I moved here <laughs> because of the weather. So I sincerely, uh, I, I give you kudos for that. I do not miss the Midwest winters at all. Um, <laughs> minus 50 wind chill. I, I could skip that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, people absolutely. are down to earth and it's, it's, yeah. Uh, it's plus and minuses everywhere. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I do miss is my basement. Mm. Not having a basement here just is, I don't, it's not weird. I've, I've gotten used to it, but it is something that I still miss. Cause that was just a, it was just a, it was a whole nother floor to your yeah. house. <laughs> yeah. That was like everybody growing up, everybody's basement was basically the playroom. Yeah. It's a big playroom. Exactly. Whereas here it's like nobody has them. Yeah. So yeah. that's another side to it. Real estate also, man. Yeah. Space. I mean, you have a lot more yeah. space than I do. I mean, I live in the Bay Area, and it's amazing. Um, you know, just it's uh, <laughs> you get so little <laughs> for for the amount yeah. of money, but uh, yep. yeah, um, but it's Better sunny too. every day. Yeah, sunny every day. Yeah, you definitely have the best weather. Yes, for sure. Yeah. 
Well, Nate, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Uh, No, Uh, I'm excited. You know, this has been a lot of fun, so really appreciate the time. Um, And uh, no, we're excited to do some cool stuff and maybe we'll check in in a few years and we'll uh, see how that uh, growth's come along. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll be excited to hear how y'all are moving and and hear some of these really cool projects y'all are working on. So thank you again, Nate. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to go fill out. The link for that is also in the show notes. Please go fill it out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.